There are fewer than 30 men in the world qualified to drive Formula One. A mere half dozen, perhaps, to win. At this moment, I'm inclined to think you're not one of them. Welcome to F1Weekly.com. My name is Clark Rogers. I'm the host of the program. I'll be joined by Nasser Hamid, my co-host. This is podcast number 1026, January 8th, 2024, Nasser. Good evening, Mr. Rogers. Greetings and racing regards to the F1 Weekly Familia around the world. Today we talk about drivers sailing through the sand dunes of Saudi Arabia and those running up the hill. The goodie bag is full of pride of your nation. We shall explain gladly. Back to the base. Thank you, Nasser. On today's program, happy birthday to Lewis Carl Hamilton. He's now 39 and joining the old men of the sea. Dakar Rally in full swing. We will have all the details. Fernando is the nicest man I ever met, says one F1 driver. And the FIA could be some kind of power struggle. But they're losing personnel, key personnel. Without them, they become a problem, but he's appointing new personnel. So we'll see what's going on over there. And this week's interview, we're going back in time again with Henri Pescarolo, recorded at Le Mans in 2009. This is the meat and potatoes of F1Weekly.com, ladies and gentlemen. And Nasser will have all the minute details on that interview coming up. And I must remind everybody, of course, that we do need your contributions during these slow periods when people are missing F1. So please, to keep the program up on the servers, just click on the Support F1 Weekly tab. We added a new tab that makes it much easier. Apparently, some people could not find the tab. So there you go. I want to thank Don Hogue for his contribution. Nass, I know you're pumped up. We got Dakar, beautiful images, beautiful cars. Sebastian Loeb, still another great driver. All these guys are, are getting up there in time. And yet there's still a lot of young drivers in the pack. So it's been a lot of fun to watch. Welcome to Studio Nass. I'm sure you're enjoying every minute of it. I was doing very good. I was enjoying anything and everything. But about a minute ago, you put me in a deep... Uh, mild blue funk by saying one Grand Prix driver said machismo is the greatest hombre so let, let me guess who could it be Landstroll or Fisico <laughs> no it was uh, our driver from uh, Sauber Wanju Wanjiao Guan Yu Zhou Guan Yu Zhou apparently had terrific praise Fernando took him to his side and gave him support when support was needed. Yeah, I saw that news item and story, and then he had his 
paintings of, uh, you know, photos of Alonzo all over his room as a kid. And surprisingly, he said, after the meeting, Alonzo sent him a text. Who That caught my attention. It's just good stuff, isn't it? Yes. Wonder what uh, if there was any white powder or Chinese white rice underneath his car the next day. We, we may have to check with Sauber. I will check with Sauber, but Fernando does have now a free ticket to Mongolian beef for the rest of his life. Absolutely, yeah. You know, um, speaking of this, uh, you know this gentleman whose work I really enjoyed when he was doing for BBC presentation? What's his name? Jake Humphreys? You know him, right? Oh, yeah. One of my best friends. Yeah, he is now doing a podcast on the YouTube, whatever it's called. And it's I think it's called Performance Something. It's very good. And what they do, they bring in uh, motor racing people, and I believe other sports also. And they talk about, if they're bringing a racing driver, most of the conversation is not about racing, but about mental situation, background, and stuff like that. And Machismo was there. And he is definitely now a kinder, gentler person. And I have to give him credit because he said anytime he had situation, he would talk to his parents. So he's a family guy, regardless of what people think of him, just like Kimi Raikkonen. And he said something very interesting. He said about people who want his autograph or who are critics and this kind of stuff. He said his father and mom told him, you know, Alonzo, when you're a public figure, that's how these people are. And shockingly, he said, since then, he is enjoying life and racing more. And he is interested in being more accessible to racing fans. So maybe there is hope for us to sit down with him and have a chat with him. Wouldn't that be lovely, Mr. Rogers? It would be lovely, you know, but... Everybody and his mother now has a podcast. It's it's just amazing. And speaking of mothers, I was really thinking of bringing back out of the archives one of our early... I know, I know. Early interviews, and that would be Manteca. We're talking culture, great cooking, and of course, Scott Speed's mother. And grandmother was there too. Absolutely. So we might bring that out very soon just to wet those misty eyes. Oh, yes. And as you would say, oh, the memories from Manteca. Gracias. Yeah. But, you know, some years ago, I ran into um, Fernando Alonso's uh, manager and I asked him if there was any. I knew the answer, but I still asked him you know, if there's any chance of doing a 10 minute interview with Alonso at any place in this world. He just smiled at me and shook his head. So that's what you get with uh, uh, trying to reach the very top of the top. But that's, you know, for little people, we're used to this kind of treatment. We are. And once these people fade away, all of a sudden they, they become lonely and very accessible. Yes, that's very true. And uh, yeah. Okay, sir. So since Formula One is number one, we're going to talk about Formula One and more new cars coming to the launch pad. February 5, Williams' team will put on a big show in the Big Apple. Their drivers, Alexander Elborn and local yokel Logan Sargent will also be present. As most of us know by now, the team once owned by Frank Williams and Patrick Head is now in the hands of New York-based Doral Capital. Now, Mr. Rogers, speaking of Williams uh, yesterday, Sunday, I was home 
and I was searching for some motorsport thingy on YouTube, which I always do first thing in the morning, and somehow I landed up on a documentary on Formula One, uh, courtesy of Sky TV. And man, what a find it was. It was rolled into another documentary. It was about Williams' team, about a very interesting story about Ron Dennis. And I really, really had one of my best Sundays ever. That's all I did all day long yesterday. Just a lot of documentaries and very, very nicely done. So if anybody wants to check it out, they are available free of charge on YouTube. Okay, sir, moving on February 12th. Aston Martin Racing, the Jolly Green Giant, will launch their new car, I believe it's called AMR24, in the hands of El Machismo. And these cars, the Jolly Green Giants, will be uh, unveiled a day before the red cars from Maranello, which will be interesting. Daddy's little Jim Clark will remain dazed and confused, as long as the other seat is occupied by Fernando Alonso. And... What a, I was just, you know, I'm still watching some motorsports, TV is mute. They were showing an interview with Lance Stroll, and I'm like, this guy won at a very young age, European Formula 3 championship, which is a very tough championship, and he cannot even beat a 40, what is he, like 43-year-old guy now? So machismo is machismo. The two-time world champion did not win a single race, but numerous podium last season made him talk of the town. Uh, sir, hopefully, hopefully they will win a race this season. What say you? If it's up to LCH, LCH wants to go back to full-blown domination. He's ready for 2014 all over again. He's renewed. He's been rejuvenated. And he's got a new girlfriend, probably new place down uh, over by Watts. I'm, I'm telling you. We could see a... And you know, Toto, I mean, there's so much pressure on Mercedes to perform. I mean, I laugh because Red Bull just recently announced that, you know, they're pretty much done with the 2025 car. <laughs> I think it's going to be scary for them. You know, Mr. Rogers, is California sinking into the Pacific Ocean? I can't believe I asked you a question about machismo and you switched to his BFF, Lewis Hamilton. But that's quite an improvement. Keep up the good work. That's called a Freudian slip. Yes. Okay. So I'll go back to the question. Do you think they will win a race today, they being Aston Martin and El Machismo? I do think so. They, I think they're going to turn the corner and they'll be up there with the McLaren. And, well, the Machis well, Machismo will be up there with the McLaren and it's going to be exciting. The McLaren is going to be pretty exciting. But on the other hand, the Red Bull is going to be very even faster than the RB19. It's going to scare people. And and then everybody will be calm because they'll realize, oh, it's deja vu all over again. Yeah, I have to agree with you. And I was thinking a few minutes before uh, you call that, you know, Red Bull has Checo in one car. Maybe the name on the other car should be Check Out. <laughs> Race starts and by lap two, uh, Check Out has checked out. Uh, just an incredible talent. And I'm loving it. I would love to see more competition and Sir Mix-a-Lot kind of stuff uh, on the podium. But uh, it is what it is and we shall keep enjoying it till there is a regime change. Now, there is a lot of hopes are high in uh, Brackley that Mercedes has totally all new car. 
Mike Elliott has left the building, James Ellison is back in charge, and uh, that they're going to have a competitive machinery. And they better do, because I don't think a 43-year-old Lewis Hamilton is going to challenge a 28-year-old uh, Max Verstappen, if you know what I mean. Okay, sir, some um, not-so-good news, but hopefully things will get better. Wilson Fittipaldi, brother of Emerson and father of Christian, suffered a cardiac arrest on his 80th birthday, which I believe uh, was on the same day as Christmas Day. His wife posted on uh, Instagram and it's widely reported and I quote, During dinner, he choked on a piece of meat and suffered a lack of oxygen followed by cardiac arrest, end quote. We wish him speedy recovery to full and good health. A few years ago, I met Wilson at Daytona and we had a chat. Uh, pleased to say, like his brother and son, and most of the Brazilian, not most, but all of the Brazilian drivers and people I have met, except one, it was a very nice experience. And you know the exception, most people can guess, but we don't want to throw anybody under the Greyhound bus at this stage. We, we are like Alonso, we are also getting uh, well, somewhat kinder and gentler, I guess. Excellent. We'll just say the P word. Oh, exactly. Yes. And just keep it off the wall, okay? Gracias. Okay, now we present Box, Box, Box with Kate Bush. This is the saga of drivers who will be running up the hill to save their booty and seat at the top level of motor racing this season. We shall start with your favorite, Logan Sargent, who could be Nick DeFries of 2024. There is no doubt he would already be NDV if he was also a Red Bull Junior. Whether it's uncle's money in the form of sponsorship or fellow patriotic team owners, Logan is lucky he's getting a second chance. So nice to know there is more than one lucky driver in Formula 1. Becoming the first Amerikanski to score a point in Formula 1 in 30 years is great, but unable to outqualify his teammate once cannot happen twice. Given his pedigree in junior Formula and you know we interviewed Logan when he was in uh, karting. Okay folks, I'm here in Oshisleben and Sergeant is on call. Uh, Mr. Logan Sargent, welcome to F1 Weekly. How are you? I'm doing, I'm doing good, thank you. Okay, now t tell us a little bit about yourself. You are from Florida. What part of Florida you are from and what the heck are you doing here in Oshisleben? I live in Boca Raton, Florida, but now I live in Switzerland for racing. And I'm here in Oshersleben for the, for the German Championships. And at the moment, I'm fourth in the European Championship, so that's next. Um, I very much hope he's able to put it all together in 2024 and march on to a good and successful Formula One career. I mean, it's not like that he's teammate to, um, I mean, this is not any due res respect to uh, Albon, but it's not like he's teammate to Max or Michael Schumacher or Lewis Hamilton or Alonso at Minardi. So I am hoping that he will be able to get this thing going. What say you, sir? I agree. I mean, he might, might be able to reach deep down. A lot of this is mental. And we do need a successful American driver more than anything else in the world. Just like Frederic Vasser indicated. 
So I, I totally agree. I'm hoping, fingers crossed, I just critique when I think it deems necessary. Yes. Next, we move on to sweet and sour Chinese. That would be Guan Yu Zhou. The first Chinese driver in Formula One did a decent job in his rookie season, but he is no piastri of peaking. Joe scored 6 points compared to 10 for Bottas. The best grid position for the Chinese driver was 5th, while Bottas's best grid position was 7. Only one position separated the two in terms of best race finish. Joe was 9 three times, Australia, Spain and Qatar, and Bottas 8 in the season opener in Bahrain and also in Qatar. Next, something fishy at Haas F1. That is Denmark's Kevin Magnussen. His papito was hailed as the biggest racing talent since Ayrton Senna by none other than Sir Jackie Stewart. Jan smoked his way out of Ron Dennis's house of discipline, the McLaren team. K-Mag, just like LCH, had told Ron Dennis as a young kid he wanted to drive for his team one day. That day came in Melbourne 2014. In his debut, Kevin finished second and his McLaren teammate Jensen Button was behind him. In 2015, K-Mag was the victim of Alonso coming back to McLaren, who himself became victim of GP2 engine. Did somebody say karma? Since then, K-Mag has become in and out burger of Formula 1. From Haas F1 to sports car racing with Chip Ganassi back to Formula 1. But the return of another double-double in and out burger at Haas F1 in the form of Nico Hulkenberg has created a problem for K-Mag. The Hulk scored 9 points last season and K-Mag 3. Most of the season, the German driver had Danish driver's number. K-Mag is a championship-winning driver, and you know, we have followed his career from his very first few years in single-seater racing, which was very, very impressive. He needs to up his game this season. Several drivers will be out of contract at the end of the season. Plus, Audi is on the lookout for good racing talent. He needs to be ahead of the eight and Hulkenberg's balls. What say you, sir, for the Hulkenberg and K-Mag situation this season? Hulkenberg has done a really good job. I mean, look at some of the qualifying form he brought to, to Haas. Uh, really stunning, stunning results. And that's why he's on Audi's radar. I mean, Hulkenberg has got so much experience and he's German. So he's, he's going to be a hot potato when Audi starts uh, picking around and see who they can get. I mean, I know Carlos Jr. seems the obvious choice because of his papa, doing decently right now in the Audi and the Dakar rally and their wonderful relationship. But mm, I don't know. Yes, based on the rumors that are floating around, Hulkenberg looks like the hot potato at Audi and Carlos Sainz Jr., the hot paella at Audi also. And that will be a good combination, but we'll see how it goes. You know, some other, a new Max Verstappen, which I highly doubt will come through the system in the next couple of years but you never know that's true i mean i can't imagine the planets aligning themselves perfectly for audi to pluck a young talent and all of a sudden make toto worry so no hulkenberg and carlos Sainz jr is a great great 
driver lineup. I mean, if they could put that together, that's a lot of experience, and and that's what they'll need to for for development for at least two or three years. And you know, when Carlos Sainz went to Renault to be teammate, I'll never forget this. Um, he was an up and coming hot talent, and he joined Renault, and Hulkenberg was already there. And Hulkenberg was asked, "Are you, are you worried about?" Carlos Sainz Jr. coming, and he says no, and uh, nothing, uh, I mean, Carlos Sainz did not do to Hulkenberg. The only driver who could outrace Hulkenberg as teammate was Daniel Ricciardo, so this will be a good lineup. Okay, sir, moving on, Bulls get slaughtered on Wall Street and in Dr. Marcos Abattoir, also known as Red Bull Junior Academy. We already talked about Checo, and he could be in the checkout lane by the end of the season, if he does not finish second in the championship, I think it's going to be Red Bull all over again. And I'll be very surprised if Max is not world champion. But I think, and now today I saw a news item saying that if Checo does well, Red Bull will keep him in 2025. He really, if Max, I don't think he's going to win. Regardless of how many races Max wins, I don't think Checo's going to win half that number. So if Max wins five, he may get two, but uh, I just don't see him taking the fight to all season long to uh, Max. Would you like to add on this or shall we move on? I will say something about the Red Bull situation. It's going to be intriguing because if they do dominate, as we suggest they will, that's going to frighten people and start thinking, God, now we have 2025 to live through. Because 2026 is the really, really big changes where Red Bull goes to really a different power plant. So we'll see what happens, but I think some boots will be shaken. No, I think, not that I wish this, but you know, when you have a major change, things happen. But I think uh, 2026, he's going to have his LCH moment uh, of this season and Alonso's moment of several seasons in the past but you know it's all about the package but we can't deny how good max is and how good lch is and how good alonso is so we'll see how it works out okay sir moving on valtteri botas he needs to be shining this season from top to bottom on the track not just by a pawn in colorado now he is saying he's already at sauber and you know this year they will be known as stake f1 and he's trying to stake his claim to a seat at audi uh, saying that um, because Audi apparently has said that they will make a decision on driver lineup in the first part of this season. So Botas, according to his interview that I read, he wants to have a chat with the team as to what they will do. Uh, he's a good, um, you know, if they bring in um, either Science Jr. or um, Holkenberg, I think Botas is a good guy. He's a very good team player. He's a race-winning driver. And obviously, first year, they should not expect Max Verstappen or the second coming of Schumacher to race for uh, Audi. But I do think that Audi, in due course of time, will put this all together, and they're going to become as dominant as Mercedes and Red Bull in a lifetime. But time will tell. Now we come to Yuki Sonoda. He needs to up his game and finishing record to avoid becoming Betamax of motorsports. Remember Sony Betamax? One of my favorites. I, I remember the cassettes and everything. If my neighbor had a beta, and I told him, you might not want to get that. 
but he had a couple of thousand dollars to spend, so what the hell? Yeah, so Yuki going nowhere despite heavy financial backing of a Japanese giant. It was impressive as far as Beta Max was concerned that despite the power and technology and wealth and whatever financial strength of Sony, it was the losing system. But that's the way it goes. And sir, last but not the least, and after this we have to take a break so we can get some uh, lightsabers in the sunny water. Last but not the least, Lance Troll. He's a lot more smart than people realize. Over Christmas he gave his dad a 45, not from Colt, but from Capitol Records featuring But you loved me, Daddy. You scatter your toys and you make too much noise. But you love me, Daddy. You have anything to say on this issue, sir? It's well, it's it's a coincidence, but it's one of my favorite songs, NASA. So on that note, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back after these brief messages. Hi, I'm Juan Pablo Montoya, and you're listening to F1 Weekly. Welcome back to F1Weekly.com. Clark Rogers here, your host. And now, as we spin the globe and go around the world with Motorsports Mondial and the king, the Swami himself, Nasser Hamid. Thank you, Mr. Rogers. We're going to go back in time all the way to 1973 for this interview with Henri Pascarola. And I think I've mentioned this a few times. I got hooked on motor racing when I heard on BBC World Service the start of the 1973 Le Mans 24-hour race with commentary from a chap named Robin Richards. As the cars went by, he said, Matra, Ferrari, Matra, V12 three V12 cars and you can imagine the sound, the power and the fury and the feelings I had as a 14 year old and things would never be the same again. Anyway, the gentleman who won that race was Andre Pascarola and in 2009 I sent an email to his team uh, requesting an audience and I gave a little background of what I just said and his wife responded, please come and meet Henri at the trailer. So I went there and we had this conversation. It was very, very nice. And you know, the other gentleman who was running second in the Ferrari at that start, Brian Redman, I also have met him a few times. He now lives in Florida. So it's very, very nice to catch up with all these past historical figures of motor racing and share the experience with members of F1 Weekly. The 1973 Le Mans, the golden jubilee of this classic Grand Prix of endurance. Last year's winner, Frenchman Henri Pescarolo, with co-driver Gerard Larousse, driving a Matra Simca number 11. It's 3,016 miles round the clock at average speeds of over 100 miles an hour. It was a race-long battle between the Matras and the Ferraris for first place until Jackie X and Brian Redman in number 15 went into the pits and out of the race. Number 16 was the only Ferrari to finish. 
Number 12, driven by Frenchman Joseph Jabouille, the only other Matra to finish apart from the winner. Pescarola's Matra out in front was almost taking it easy after Ix went out of the race. Out of 55 starters, only 21 finished. And when the winner came in 50 miles ahead, the police had great difficulty in holding back the enthusiastic crowd. An all-French win for Henri Pescarolo and Gerard Larousse. Nasser, welcome to the studio. Introduce this outstanding historical driver, team owner. Well, this conversation is with Henri Pescarolo, one of the true legends of French motor racing. And his father was a doctor by profession, and that's the profession he was going to follow till he discovered beautiful world of motor racing. And he was associated with Matra racing program from the early years, drove for them sports car racing, Formula 2 and Formula 1. And it was at Le Mans where he really made his name with them because he won three years in a row, 72, 73, 74. And then later on, he had a win with Porsche also. And I also want to thank his wife, Madi, very much because this was arranged through her um, uh, help and uh, cooperation. And Henri Pescarolo is also a very huge, uh, serious flying enthusiast, flies quite a bit. And at Le Mans, where this conversation took place, his team was also running a like a third separate car for Peugeot. So I would like to thank Mr. Henri Pescarolo once again, and also his wife, Madi, and I hope uh, listeners enjoy this conversation. Thank you. Okay, I'm here at Le Mans with the legend of Le Mans, Mr. Henri Pescarola. Henri, first of all, thank you for your time. How are you today, sir? Uh, very well. We are ready. We had a good practice yesterday and um, ready today for the qualification. Uh, you have raced in Formula 1 at places like Monza, Spa and Nürburgring. What makes Le Mans so special for you? You know, uh, when I, uh, I was very lucky when I was driving uh, at the beginning of my career because um, in the team in which I was, that's Matra Sport. We had in the same time uh, Formula, prototype, rally cars, hill climbs car. So we were doing everything, you know. So um, uh, Formula 3, Formula 2, I had the best car and I won all the championship. Formula 1 for the first year, I had a car which was not so good, but fantastic result for my first year. You know, third in Monaco, uh, four time in the points. For a first year, it was a young driver, it was good. But after that, I had uh, no competitive Formula 1 cars. It was not so interesting, you know, with the 30s, with uh, Frank Williams at the beginning, uh, uh, with BRM and so. So in the same time, I had the best car in prototype. So I had fantastic results with the prototype. So when you are doing endurance and when you are doing prototype, the most famous race is Le Mans. So at the end, it became the most important race for me too. Three wins in a row with Matra and one with Porsche. Which one was the most satisfying for you? Uh, I think with Matra, you know, because um, I had uh, the opportunity which uh, never had before except Beltoise and me. We start our career at the same time that a new manufacturer was starting his career. I mean, we started in uh, 1965 at the same time than Matra. 
and um, we grew all together until the end, uh, which was Formula One and the prototype. So we we did tremendous effort uh, for ten years, you know, to um, to be able to win Le Mans and to win the World Championship uh, in Formula One. So the first uh, win in Le Mans with Gramil, uh, that was absolutely absolutely fabulous and. Um, in the in the same time, I had um, two other wins in the 72, 73, 74. So that was uh, fantastic because it was Matra. But with Porsche, it was very good too because it was 10 years later. So it was uh, very difficult to imagine that perhaps I could win again. So that was very good, and that was good because I was with Arnoldius, who was a good friend of me, uh, against which I have been uh, driving... When he was driver, and with him I won Le Mans as a team manager for him, so that was very good. You mentioned Graham Hill. How did you find him as a person and a driver? Oh, it was, he, he was a legend already. When um, You know, originally I, I was not um, so fun to be with him because, you know, he was um, already a legend. He won Indianapolis, he won Formula One Championship. And I was not sure he was able to take any risks in Le Mans. You know, when you start in the night, and it's raining, uh, it's very dangerous. So um, I wanted to be with uh, an experienced driver, but he was not so old than him. You know, it's difficult for me to say that now, but um, I was not uh, convinced that he was coming really to win. And that was fantastic because he really came to win. And uh, the, the, the time he has been the most fantastic was in the night on the rain. You know, it, uh, and he, his experience was tremendous. He drove beautifully and we won uh, because of him. You know, he was, he was fantastic. And that was a big honor for me to be with, uh, with such a teammate. You know. Many years ago, you had a teammate for only one race who was not a legend but became a very big legend. How was the experience of having Ayrton Senna as a young man, as a teammate? That's uh, that's funny because uh, nobody kn knew about that, you know. And since a um, few years now, some preachers of, uh, of, of us appear, you know. But uh, nobody uh, remembers that Senna raced with me, with Lionel Lewis at the Nürburgring. And it was uh, quite strange because he was very young, completely unknown. And uh, his team manager uh, was Domingo Piedad. You know, and uh, he brings Senna um, to Reinhold Just and uh, said him, you must try him. He, uh, he, he, look, he looks very good. So Senna was very uh, timid, uh, shy, uh, you know, he stayed um, in the box uh, speaking to nobody. And as soon as he was in the car, poof, he was the fastest, you know, that was fantastic. Great. Okay, um, your team has a Peugeot turbo diesel for this year's race. How did this deal come about? Did you contact them or did Peugeot call you? No, not at all. I worked with them two years ago, you know, when they were supposed to leave the rally and to come to endurance. Jean-Pierre Nicolas asked me to um, cooperate with him to try to help him to come uh, in, that, in such a new um, uh, speciality, you know. The, so I worked with them uh, for um, three months, and uh, they asked me to become a um, team manager, but they asked me at the same time uh, to stop my team and to, uh, to do not use anybody of my team. And my team, that's my family. So I said to them, no, I cannot, you know, I will continue with my team. And uh, so I was not thinking that it could happen anymore, you know. And uh, with uh, uh, Olivier Canel, you know, which uh, is uh, somebody, somebody uh, who is very clever, 
He thought uh, so there will be uh, five Audis in Le Mans, uh, three official, uh, two uh, R10. We have only three cars, so the number of cars is important in Le Mans. So he said, uh, we are able to build a fourth car, so we must uh, give him to the best team. And he chose, he chose me, so that was a big honor for me. And um, it's very uh, important for me to prove that Pescarolo Sport team is able um, to run such a car which everything is completely new for us you know it's a, it's a big uh, big diesel car and um, uh, we have to uh, to be uh, competitive straight away you know it's very interesting for us it's a big honor and it's also very important for a private team to be closer from uh, with a manufacturer you know now, before racing, you were on your way to becoming a doctor like your father. What made you decide motor racing would be a better therapy? No, uh, you know, to be a doctor, you must have... Um, it, it must be a dream for you, you know, because it's a very special uh, job, you know, and uh, I was not uh, really uh, dreaming to be a doctor like my father. But anyway, I became, um, I became a student in... Uh, doctor you know and um, but I was interested in planes I was interested in cars and everything and I had the opportunity to participate at the first um, uh, promotional races which uh, were organized in France with the Lotus 7 so I have I entered that uh, no I didn't know exactly what I could do and I won so after I had the choice uh, either try to become a racing driver or to become doctor and I choose to try to become a racing driver. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the races with Lotus 7 in 1964. Uh, two of your teammates, uh, drivers you raced against were Johnny Servoz-Gavin and Patrick Depaye. Uh, can you please uh, tell a, a little bit about these two drivers, how they were? There was also François Sever, but uh, he didn't participate to the races, but he participated to the selection. But uh, his father didn't want him to, to race, you know. So, um, of course, uh, Servoz Gavin and the Payet were, um, as you know, uh, fantastic drivers, and they were already fantastic uh, uh, when we started together, you know. It was, um, they were good friends, uh, they became good friends, uh, they were very quick, and um, it was nice competition with them, you know. It was um, very good souvenirs. Now, Johnny Servos Gavin was your matra teammate and he developed a playboy reputation. How good was he uh, when he was serious about racing? When he was serious, he, he was one of the best. You know, he, he was really, it, it was a pure talent, you know. He was um, very quick, very easily quick, you know. But he was not so serious, as you said. And he had some problem with Cantirel because Cantirel wanted a serious driver. And he was only, uh, but it's, it's, it's uh, something very important, he was only a very quick driver. But you know, that was uh, the period where um, Formula One became very professional with sponsors and so, and he was not uh, serious enough for that. Now, uh, Jean-Luc Lagardère, the gentleman uh, who started the Matra racing team, um, how was your experience in dealing with him? Was he a very tough boss or was he good to deal with? Yes, he was a really tough boss, but um, I think uh, he was able to create around him uh, a real spirit of the team. You know, we, we were called uh, the matracien, you know, that means uh, the, our life was matracien. Just because Jean-Luc Lagardère uh, uh, was um, such a good manager that we were ready 
to be killed for him, you know. But he was also in the same time able to do very something very brutal, you know. When uh, in '71 uh, he pushed me away of the team after a fantastic first year in Formula One, as I told you, you know, third in Monaco, uh, three or four times in the points. Just because he considered Beltoise was a second driver, he take uh, Chris Eamon from Ferrari and pushed me away with no sentiment at all, you know, uh, with no... Uh, that was very bad, you know, he, uh, he destroyed me completely, you know, so he was able to do that. There was a driver who was killed during uh, testing, uh, Robbie Weber. Did you know him and were you there when he had his accident? Yes, we fought uh, in Formula 3 uh, for a very long time, so I knew him very well. And uh, that uh, I have been chosen to um, race in Barcelona uh, in single-seater because Lagarde, I think, uh, thought I was able to win. So he stayed in Le Mans for the practice. It could have been the contrary, you know. Now, in 1968, you moved up to Formula 2 with Matra. How big was the difference in the level of uh, competition between Formula 3 and Formula 2 drivers? The biggest difference is uh, in that time, in Formula 2, there was Formula 1 drivers. You know, the first time I raced in Formula 2, there was Jim Clark behind me, uh, Graham Hill, Chris Simon, uh, uh, which were around me. So that was the biggest difference. But, uh, excuse me. And also the, the big difference was it was a, a car which was a, a lot more powerful than the Formula 3, you know, but it's not really so difficult when you are a good driver to have a straightaway double of torque and double of power. But the, most, the biggest difference is we were competing against the good Formula 1 drivers, you know, in Formula 2. That was very interesting. In 1968, uh, Formula 2 race, uh, Heat 1 in Hockenheim. Uh, you finished second and Jim Clark was killed. Who gave you the news and what was the mood of the drivers af- after they got the news? Of course, Jim, Cl- Jim Clark was c- completely a legend, you know, so for me it was very sad, you know, to know that. But uh, in that time, every weekend, a driver was killed, you know, that we were used to that. You know? So it was Jim, Jim Clark, it, uh, it's a pity, but I had so many other drivers killed around me that in that time that was racing, you know. Okay, uh, your Grand Prix debut came in uh, Canada at the Mont Tremblant circuit. In those days in Formula One, was the pressure as high as it is these days? It's always a big pressure for a driver to be in Formula One because there are not many cars to drive and many drivers who want to drive. So you have, first of all, the pressure to stay in Formula One. That means you must be perfect in the car, you must be competitive, you must do no, no mistakes at all. And you are working for a manufacturer, so when uh, it's uh, about the same pressure than now, you know, it was big competition. It was uh, very important for Matra to have good results. Uh, it was very important for me to try to stay with Matra, so to have good results too. So the pressure is about the same. You mentioned you had a podium in Mo- Monaco in a Formula 1 race. How does that podium in a Formula 1 race compare to outright victory at Le Mans? I, I very often uh, said that I would have preferred to win uh, three Grand Prix and three Le Mans. But uh, now, I, I, I'm not sure that I was uh, clever to say that because uh, uh, to win Le Mans is something which is really fantastic. There is only one Le Mans per year. There are 18 Grand Prix per year, you know. So what I regret really is to do not have, uh, t- n- that I had not, as good cars in Formula 1 that I have a good car in the prototype because I was sure I was able to win also in Formula 1. 
you in racing you have also driven for Frank Williams and Ron Dennis how are these uh, guys to deal with they have a very very tough reputation Frank Williams was exactly the same uh, from what it is now what it is now you know it's a fantastic guy you know it was really a pleasure to be with him even if in that time he had no money at all it was very difficult you know to race uh, for him because uh, he was always looking for money but um, he, he was already a fantastic manager he has been uh, later you know the organization was perfect the car were perfect with no money and the guy was fantastic to to i was living with him in england you know and uh, it's one of my best uh, souvenirs you know to be with frank randonis is exactly the contrary that was really the worst uh, team manager i had he was a uh, very good about organization very good to um, prepare a car very good to run a team but very bad with drivers you know he, he, uh, he, uh, all the money was coming from uh, France with for two French drivers and uh, he was doing everything to um, give the best engine the best car uh, to um, uh, Tim Schenken, you know. So um, Tim Schenken had always uh, what, uh, what was the best, and we had always what was the worst. You know, he didn't like the French, uh, but he was uh, clear. You know, he, he always said that uh, he would he prefer uh, Schenken, and he was doing uh, everything for him and not for us. You know, so all the big um, problem he had in the future, they were already. Uh, present at that time, you know. You, you, you know he had so much problem with uh, his drivers uh, in Formula 1. It's exactly the same, you know. It was exactly the same when he started. Okay, last question. According to your website, you and Patrick Fortique set the record for the fastest crossing of the Atlantic from New York to Paris in 1984. Uh, what is more thrilling, flying in the air or flying at Mulsanne without the chicanes in a blue, beautiful Matra? Originally, I wanted to be a pilot. I, want, I wanted to be a fight uh, pilot, you know, to be a, But uh, I became a racing driver, but my passion is still there, you know. I'm flying all the time. I got an helicopter, and um, it's also very, very interesting. What I have done with uh, Patrick Fortic, it's not only the record on the Atlantic with uh, Malibu. It was also to beat uh, a world youth record around the world, you know, with um, a Lockheed uh, 18, the same. Uh, planes and uh, war jokes. Uh, I like so much to fly and I like so much to try to beat records and competition that uh, I cannot say I prefer one to the other. One is my uh, job, the other one is my passion. Now both are my passion, but uh, yeah, I had about, um, of course, it's. It has been more important for me what I have done uh, with the cars because that was my job, that was what I wanted to do. But uh, in the pen, I am really in, in the right place too. Uh, finally, how about a message for listeners of F1 Weekly? We have listeners uh, everywhere or around the world, including France. The message is uh, only uh, the same, you know, it's to try to, um, during his life, to try to... Uh, to have in the same time uh, the job which is, which is your passion, you know, and um, with that uh, you are happy. Thank you very much, sir. Henri Pescarolo, thanks for joining F1Weekly.com. Back to you, Nas. Yes, sir. Now, we can never get off enough of some people apart from uh, Alonso. Alonso, we have Dr. Marco. So we have more of Marco here. The good doctor of jurisprudence, known to the racing world as Sir Chopper Lord, 
Dr. Helmut Marko has signed a new three-year extension with what Lewis calls drinks company, <laughs> which basically means another, <laughs> this is pretty sad, but I think this will happen, which basically means another 10 races for whoever replaces Sergio Perez as teammate to Max. Dr. Marco has been running the Red Bull Junior program for 25 years and once upon a time he asked somebody from Mentica, California also. His own racing CV includes winning the Le Mans 24-hour race and I believe he won the Targa Florio in Sicily also in a Porsche. And the Le Mans was of course with Porsche and Dutch driver Heis van Lennep, whom we met at Laguna, uh, Laguna Seca some years ago. And of course, as far as Porsche is concerned, they could not do their success in their Formula 1 program uh, when they were with Footworks. They did have a lot of success with McLaren, of course. And they did win one IndyCar race here in the U.S. Dr. Marco went to school with Jochen Rinn and, believe it or not, at one time ran a team in Tony George's Indy Racing League. If only we were doing podcasting. Well, there was no podcast. I think F1 Weekly started just when the podcasting was introduced to the world, right? That is correct, sir. 2005, we are always on the edge of technology. Yes, and at least you and David Tapia. And, uh, you know, I was talking to one of the uh, drivers, Harry Tinknell, who's in sports car racing. Actually, he's driving for Ford at Daytona. And uh, he asked me, I told him we've been doing um, uh, since 2015 because we've interviewed him a few times. And he said, that was uh, just about when podcasting started. I said, oh, yeah, we have outlasted the Renault F1 team podcast. And don't you forget that, Mr. Rogers. Okay, sir, now we come to the great Dakar rally. And Lauda is in the rally. And I believe this is the first time that we see the Lauda name in um, Dakar rally. And that is Lucas Lauda, one of Nikki's four kids. He is driving a car painted in the McLaren colors as a tribute to his great friend. You know, his other son, Matthias Lauda, he raced for Avon GP Team Austria. And I met him a couple of times. Man, the guy looks just like his dad. And he is approachable and very friendly uh, and very nice kid. And again, his dad was the same way. Now, Robbie, Robbie Gordon's BFF, Stefan Peter Hensel, is looking for his 15th victory in this event and you know mr rogers uh, we are recording this um, and let me just i put some notes here let me see what the latest uh, results are and this is uh, at this time after i believe it's two stages the leader is local yokel al yazid al raji and he is driving a toyota hilux toyota hilux is a very pickup very popular outside us and it's something in between a to what is called here Toyota Tacoma, and it's definitely smaller than a Toyota Tundra. Carlos Sainz Jr., uh, oh, excusez-moi, Carlos Sainz Sr. is running second in an Audi, e-tron, I believe they call it. Uh, third is his teammate from Sweden, Matthias Ekstrom. Matthias uh, was very successful in DTM with Audi, and believe it or not, once upon a time raced a NASCAR, at Sears Point, so it's interesting. Now the other um, contenders are Nasser Alatia, who has won the rally a few times. He is driving for uh, Dave Richards Pro Drive Hunter, and he's from Qatar. And we already mentioned um, Peter Hansel, your hero, your dios, Sebastian Lowe. He's also driving a Pro Drive Hunter. 
he's running ninth and he's looking for his uh, first Dakar win. And Loeb is another guy I really, really want to sit down and have a chat with. So we'll see what we can do. And he comments, have you been watching uh, uh, the Dakar rally on tele? I have been watching it. It's on Peacock every day at 4.30 Pacific Standard Time. And you have to do a little searching. It's usually the last sports show on the whole lineup. But it's good. It's I mean, it's only a half hour. It's a recap of today's stage. But hey, it's better than nothing. And it's, it's, it's a good watch. I like it. It's, it's well uh, documented. The photography is awesome, of course. Yeah, yeah. Photography and the landscape. It's amazing how beautiful the desert can be. And uh, yeah, so you said 4.30 PST, so it'll be 7.30 EST. Yes, and it's also available on YouTube, and that's where I've been watching the highlights. Very interesting. Okay, sir, now we present Moments in Motorsports History. Mr. Rogers, you may remember from your attendance at the very successful Avon GP event at Laguna Seca. You and I were there, but we were strangers in paradise in those days. And every race was started by the command, gentlemen, for the pride of your nation, start your engines. Do you remember that? And maybe it's one of your favorite commands. Strangers in the night. There you go. Okay, so today we present first Formula One success for each Grand Prix winning country. And when I say Formula One, we're talking Grand Prix races. Because, you know, first decade Indy 500 was also there. So we shall start with Italy. Nino Farina, 1950 British Grand Prix. Of course, the first ever Formula One championship race. The season, this season, all Grand Prix races were won by Farina and Fangio. This does not include the Indy 500, which was part of the championship, and in 1950 was won by Johnny Parsons. So the first American to win a world championship event would be Johnny Parsons, but not a Grand Prix. Next, we move on to land of pampas and lots of beefs. Argentina, Juan Manuel Fangio, 1950 Monaco Grand Prix, driving in Alfa Romeo. Then we come to jolly old England, Mike Hawthorne, 1953 French Grand Prix for Ferrari at Reims. And this was a very close race and he beat uh, by a very small margin one Manuel Fangio. So at that time it was like one of the greatest events. Probably still is. France, your Shangri-La. Maurice Tintignon, 1955 Monaco Grand Prix. Interestingly, three other French drivers also took their maiden wins in Monaco. Jean-Pierre Beltois, Patrick Depaille, and Olivier Panis. Australia, Jack Brabham, 1959 Monaco Grand Prix in the Green Copa. Sweden, Joe Bonnier, 1959 Dutch Grand Prix. This was first win for BRM 
Bonnier is a one-hit wonder. And sir, speaking of uh, Sweden, I hope I'm not jumping the gun and I hope it works out uh, through the efforts of a gentleman in Copenhagen, Denmark. I was able to reach a gentleman who is good friends with Tommy Peterson, who is the brother of Ronnie Peterson, and he has agreed to meet me on February 26th in his hometown, Urebru, uh, which is uh, north of uh, Stockholm, and I've already bought my ticket to Arlanda International Airport in Stockholm, so if all goes up well, knock knock, it will be a tremendous uh, moment for me to sit down and have a word with the driver's brother, who I thought was the greatest thing on earth in 1973. He won a lot of races, took his first win in, uh, at Paul Rica. So I hope it works out. Uh, we'll uh, have a nice chat, find out Ronnie's early life from his karting days and all that. So we'll see how it works out. But that is the plan. Okay, from Sweden we go to New Zealand. Bruce McLaren was their first winner, 1959 US Grand Prix at Sebring. This was the first ever Formula One Grand Prix in the USA. And Sebring is only 90 miles from F1 Weekly's Right Coast Palatial Studios. And speaking of Sebring, FLA in the USA, we come to the United States. Phil Hill was the first American to win a Grand Prix, Formula One Grand Prix, I should say, 1960 Parco Monza. His first victory was the last victory for a front-engine Formula One car. And that was, of course, a Ferrari. Deutschland Überales, also known as Germany, Wolfgang von Trips was their first Grand Prix winner, the 1961 Dutch Grand Prix, and of course at Monza he was here after colliding with uh, Jim Clark's Lotus. Scotland, Innes Ireland, the first ever Grand Prix, he won the first ever Grand Prix at Watkins Glen, New York, 1961. Mexico, south of the border, Pedro Rodriguez, 1967 South African Grand Prix in a Cooper powered by a Maserati engine. Belgium, Jackie X, 1968 French Grand Prix, driving for Ferrari at Rouen Street Circuit. This is the race in which French driver Joe Schlesser was killed in a fiery crash of his air-cooled Honda, which John Surtees had refused to drive. Switzerland, Joe Sefford. 1968 British Grand Prix at Brands Hatch. Three years later, at the same track in a non-championship race, he was killed when his BRM crashed and went up in flames. Making his Formula 1 debut in this race was Carlos Reutemann. And Carlos Reutemann told me this when we did the interview in Buenos Aires some years ago. Can you imagine making your Formula 1 debut and a driver gets killed? But that was basically the story in those days. I am Carlos Reutemann, please listen FA1 Weekly. Now we come to Austria, Jochen Rindt was their first Grand Prix winner and that was at Watkins Glen 1969, Lotus. Brazil, Emerson Fittipaldi in 1970, also at Watkins Glen and also driving for Colin Chapman and Lotus. Then we move on to South Africa, Jody Schechter, Swedish Grand Prix 1974 for Tyrrell. Other drivers who scored maiden wins in home Grand Prix are Sterling Moss, Gilles Villeneuve, Jean-Pierre Beltois, and Ludovico Scarfiotti. He won for Ferrari in 1966, and I think to this day he's the last Italian to 
driver to um, win the uh, Italian Grand Prix. Then we come to Finlandia, Keke Rosberg in a Williams, our favorite Dijon Prenoir, in the race, the 1982 Swiss Grand Prix. And actually this year he won the championship and this was his only win from that season. Colombia, the one and only Juan Pablo Montoya, Monza 2001 Williams BMW. And what a performance that was. And I believe he, um, thing in qualifying, he had hit over 160 miles per hour, if I remember correctly. And finally, we come to Viva España. El Machismo from Oviedo, Fernando Alonso. First Grand Prix win, 2001, Budapest. No, it was 2003, excuse me, more. 2000 was his debut in Australia. So he wins his first Grand Prix for Spain in 2003, Hungarian Grand Prix. And sir, you may not know this, but since the 2007 Hungarian Grand Prix, every year Alonso goes to the race, he hears the same tune in the Budapest Hotel Elevator. Now we move on to Polska Republic, Robert Kubica, Canada 2008, giving Sauber BMW their one and only victory. And he may be at Daytona, he's not doing some sports car racing. You know, I met him last year at um, Sebring and he gave me his email address and I've sent him a couple of emails, but it has been a, it has not been a case of return to sender, no such name, but uh, it's the case of I hear you knocking but no answer but that's the way it goes and now we come to Venice of the South Venezuela for the pride of his nation and Simon Simon Boulevard and let's not forget comrade Hugo Chavez Senor Pastor Maldonado delivers a shocking and accident-free performance to become a one-hit wonder beating Alonso and Raikkonen in Barcelona to win the 2012 Spanish Grand Prix, which to this day is the last Grand Prix won by William. And you know, what can I say about Pastor Maldonado? You may remember that once upon a time, William's team took a car with Pedovesa, the National Oil Company sponsor, to a huge event in Caracas. A lot of people there, and I think President Chavez was there also. And what does Pastor Maldonado do at the first corner, sir? Crashado. Absolutely. Unbelievable. But, you know, we wish him well. I've interviewed him a couple of times. He's very nice and friendly. And he may be at Daytona again, and I'm going there in a week or so when they are doing the qualifying. So I'll, I'll say hola to him again. Okay, now moving on. Netherlands. Max Verstappen, Barcelona 2016. As teardrops were falling from blue Spanish eyes of the Mercedes drivers, Max was celebrating become the youngest becoming the youngest Grand Prix driver. And the beat goes on and will go on for a decade or so. Okay, now we come to Monaco, Charles Leclerc, 2019 Belgian Grand Prix at Spa. What a place to win your first race. Jim Clark and Michael Schumacher also took their first taste of success at Spa. And in both cases, we know how far it went. So there you have it, Mr. Rogers. Any comments, any observation, any predictions, hallucinations that you would like to share with us? Outstanding, Nasser, of course. Fernando will win in 2024. I do have some bad news that just came off the wire. 
the great Dakar rally driver Jackie Lumens passed away, 71 years old, of course. He entered the Paris-Dakar rally back in 1987, driving an R4. He was also one of the last drivers to drive for Porsche back in the 90s, I believe, driving the Porsche 964. So there you go. We just keep losing everybody. Yes, sir. Sad, but, uh, you know, cycle of life, I guess. Well, we do want to thank everybody for listening. And Motorsports is on. Dakar is going on. Daytona qualifying. Oh, Mr. Rogers, thanks to you and thanks for wonderful cooperation from Scusa Supercars USA. We have uh, media credentials for the Scusa event winter tour in Miami Homestead. So more will be driving early morning Saturday to Miami. And we were there last year also. It's, it's, karting is incredible, man, I'll tell you. And you, you know, this phenomenon of uh, soccer moms, man, you see that on the track when a 15 or a 10, 12 minute go-kart race is going and how the patterns behave. It's, I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous to be honest with you. I could. <laughs> wow. That's a whole different kind of program, Nasser. And we can't handle that kind of psychological warfare. So once again, I want to thank you for an outstanding show. I want to thank everybody who listens. We'll be back next week. Same channel, same time. Good night. Ta-ta.